Hi everyone, my name is Dr. Deb Roberts and I am the host for season two of the Mind Medicine Australia's podcast. Before we begin with this week's guest, a reminder that Mind Medicine Australia's focus is on the development and the use of evidence-based psychedelic-assisted therapies within regulated healthcare systems. We do not, though, encourage the use of psychedelic medicines outside of this context, and we do not support the use of these substances in any way that is unlawful. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only. None of the content herein constitutes medical advice. Guests' views are their own and do not represent the views of Mind Medicine Australia, and individuals need to discuss their individual healthcare needs with their healthcare providers. Thank you for listening. Oh, well, hi, Carrie. It's really nice to see you, um, albeit online, not face-to-face, but welcome to the podcast. Um, I thought that um, just as we start, uh, that just taking maybe 30 seconds or so, whoever's listening as well can do this just as a way to ground maybe your feet, um, whatever's touching the ground or your seat, just kind of taking a moment and maybe um, I do this for uh, myself just as much, but just trying to kind of ground into the space that we're in, depending on what um, we've done previously. So it's a nice moment or two. You can, if you feel that you'd like to uh, close the eyes for a moment, you can, of course, anyone listening, not if you're uh, driving or uh, running or something like that, but otherwise, um, if it suits to allow the eyes to close just for a moment or two and just trying to clear a space. So kind of filtering out residue that doesn't serve in this um, moment. And also taking a few exhales out. Sometimes then we can give a little bit more space to what might transpire uh, next. And just taking a couple more clearing, cleansing breaths. And just as you're ready, um, if you haven't already, you can just kind of blink the eyes. Sometimes when I open my eyes and uh, kind of uh, connect again um, with whatever else I'm doing, there's kind of a, a little bit more richness and vibrancy. So, and also you look great, Carrie, really great. You look fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I can't hear you, Carrie. Oh, you can't hear me. Oh, there you are. <laughs> Okay, I'm I'm going to have to lean forward like this. Is that that's fine? That's good. Yes, that's great. Yeah, yeah. Um, so welcome to the program. Uh, it's just really uh, a lovely moment in time to connect with you. How are you doing in this moment? Uh, well, look, I've never done anything like this, so I've been sick all morning and nervous. So, but that's okay. That's 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 my that's my feelings that I'm going with. So I'm great. Oh, um, isn't that nice in terms of uh, the authenticity? I think the program and what we're trying to do in uh, series two of the podcast is to relay uh, a conversation basically between 
um, lived experience, um, my own lived experience in terms of what I've experienced, um, but more so being on the lived experience panel of Mind Medicine Australia, um, there are a number of people who have been affected by either the use of psychedelic assisted therapy and bringing uh, a, a sense of well-being or a sense of literally life um, to um, our experience in daily life. So today we really wanted to just have a conversation around um, your experience um, with psychedelic assisted therapy in itself, but really um, what are those tools that we've used that have actually made a difference in our lives. So I thought to begin with, we might like to just uh, hear a little bit of background um, about yourself. Um, you don't have to necessarily, we'll go into it a little bit more in terms of specific with psychedelic um, assisted therapy, but if you'd like to just kind of introduce yourself and just a little bit of background, you can start from wherever you'd like to. Okay. Um, all right. I am, um, I'm now nearly 66 and I, I can't remember, and I'll probably cry. I've got the makeup and I'll probably cry, but anyway. I was one of the youngest, youngest of six in a Catholic family, very an unwanted child. I've got a sister in her 80s. Um, so I think I was a menopause baby. So just never knowing anything but that I was there but had nothing. And, you know, I did the Gabor Mate trauma and addiction course online and I that all my it was from by omission um I just all my I can't remember a time where I didn't hate myself basically hate the world and feel just such self-loathing and that was that was my life uh, as I say Catholic family I my first addiction was food at a very early age probably about maybe I don't know 13 or 14 I really, and I, I hated everything. I was so full of anger, but it was anger and hatred towards myself. And my first addiction was food. That was the first time I realized if I had a substance, um, that it made me feel a little bit better. Um, so that was food. That was my first addiction. The first boy that ever came along to show me any affection, I fell madly in love with him and got pregnant at the age of 16. Um, my father died during my pregnancy. He never knew that I was pregnant. And my good Catholic family were putting pressure on me that I could not have a baby. I had to give it up for adoption. I was in love with the father and we were engaged. And whatever they said and did, it didn't make any difference to me. It was like, oh, my God, I'm going to have something to love. And I had a man that loved me, or a boy, really, he was at the time. And they were determined that I was not going to keep that child and to me it was was a non-issue we were getting married and they tried every which way they sent me to Sydney to see if that made a difference and all sorts of different things they tried nothing was working but a very and it was my mother was like oh all the shit that you're putting on poor mum anyway so eventually it was wasn't very long before the baby was born I've got a brother who was a Catholic priest my eldest sister and my mum sat me down and said, Kerry, do you love this child? And I said, of course I love this child. And they said, well, no, do you really love this child, Kerry? And of course it was like, 
course I love this child. Uh, well, they said, well, you know, if you love this child, there is only one choice. I mean, if you really love this child, you've got to give this baby the best life that it could possibly have. So I was already feeling like a piece of shit. And thought, I want this child to have the best life. So it was basically manipulation. So I was forced to adopt. Well, I feel I was forced to adopt that child out and never got to see the child. It was very traumatic birth and everything like that. Um, the, the father of the baby, he did not want it to be adopted. Um, so anyway, to cut a, it's a very long story short. I had the food addiction. Um, I went on to marry the father and have three more children with him. So wow. always, wow. always in the back of my mind, though, was that other boy. And at the time, that's so long ago, at that time we were hearing stories of when IVF came out that people who had adopted children then had their own children and then sort of weren't that interested in adopted children. So I didn't even know if he was alive or dead. Um, so the food addiction continued. I started to drink a little bit of alcohol, started to smoke a bit of pot. And there was just this ongoing, you know, self-loathing, wanting just everything was terrible for me. I Depression, I'd had depression all my life, being on every antidepressant that you could ever name. Um, and so anyway, um, then I found my son and um, we had an amazing reunion. But the, the self-loathing, the self-hate, the wanting to die, all of that stuff continued. That even find him, and, and that was amazing. Didn't stop the depression. I And I went nursing three months after he was born at the age of 17. So I thought, oh, if I go nursing, at least I, I've got to be a good person. You know, I'm helping people. Um, and the bulimia and the food addiction just escalated. Um, then I started getting into some benzodiazepines and smoking a lot of pot and basically just anything that would change that the pain that you know as Gabor says it's not um why the addiction it's why the pain you know um so and then I started to do some self-work and I did courses and I spent five thousand dollars a pop on Anthony Robbins seminars I did Brandon Bay's um like the June or everything that I could find every modality I could find I did it um, and nothing nothing made me feel any better um, I had a couple of suicide attempts and um, yeah and I'd heard about ayahuasca and I went over to Peru oh no I've got to cut back here for a second I was actually a chemo nurse and wow. my depression and wanting to die was so intense and I was sitting giving chemo to like, you know, young people, young mothers, whatever. And they're, and I'm all gowned up and giving this stuff and they're saying to me, Kerry, I just, I just want to live to see next Christmas. You know, I just want to see, you know, my kids next birthday or something. And that only made me feel so much worse because here am I, I'd go home after listening to this all day and be writing in my diary, I want to die. I can't live anymore. Um, so it just was this terrible life. Um, I'll put my children through some um, And, of course, my family, the elder siblings and whatever, I was, I was um, like the failure, the one who had no self-control, the one with the mental health issues. Um, no one understood. Um, so I did go over to uh, 
to Peru. I spent 12 weeks in Peru doing ayahuasca, um, San Pedro and Cambo. I came back, nothing oral worked for me. I'm a bit strange in that way. I came back from 12 weeks in Peru in the worst state than I went. And I thought, what am I going to do? I can't go on like this, but I promised my children I wasn't going to kill myself again or try and kill myself again. And then I had a, a contact who said, Kerry, I might have something for you. Uh, can I come and see you tonight? I said, yes, please. So he arrived uh, with some crystal DMT and I smoked it. Now, on the inhalation, I was suicidal. On the exhalation, I, I, can, feel, I can feel myself welling up now. Yeah. On the exhalation, I felt the love and connection to source and the love, my love for the first time ever in my whole life. Wow. So true. that was that was the that was the start. At, at 58, it was life-changing. That was it. Yeah. Um, so since then, um, and I didn't tell my children at the time. Um, so but I stopped drinking. I was an alcoholic, a drug addict, and I went from being an alcoholic, drug addict, overweight, bulimic, depressed person. <laughs> to all of a sudden, and it was, it was like, boom. I went from that person to the person who stopped drinking, stopped drugging, started meditating, doing yoga, throwing herself in the ocean every day and had an incredible joy for life. Um, so then I, for about two years, my kids were looking at me as like, well, what in the hell's going on, Mum? What have you done? So I actually told them um, about it. So... Yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, um, everyone's embraced my journey. Um, I, I'm very grateful to Mind Medicine for doing what they're doing and trying to, to bring it to the forefront. But basically, that's my journey. I was a wreck. I was on a, I was a suicide train wreck, basically. Did. Um, wow, Kerry, I keep saying that word, and it's so... Uh, uh, even as interviewing, there are, in a way, no words to actually convey the incredible source of strength that you have, that you've just been able to convey to me, you know, as the person looking at you, but perhaps other listeners, um, I'm sure, would be agreeing. Um, the level of honesty that you are speaking from, from, you know, the 30, 20, 30 different things of what you've just described in terms of living with the pain and suffering and your ability to keep, keep going until that person, I guess, who said they could assist um, after trying many, many things in the toolbox, which, by the way, you know, the psychedelic-assisted therapy, the whole idea of um, its approach is that it isn't a magic pill, um, but it sure sounds like for you there was something that was literally immediate 
for you after countless um, other tries, whether medicinally or otherwise. And, you know, you, I'm in awe, to be honest, um, of what you've just described. I, I wonder whether or not, um, you could convey how, um, specifically that felt when you, when you literally took that breath out that exhale and um i am a yoga you know and meditation teacher in in my line of work the idea of the exhale being so um vitally important to release to um deflate angst to come to somewhat of a settled more settled state so that there's space to bring in the new the joy the conscious yeah. consciousness yeah. um could you tell us a little bit about that particular experience you felt that immediately and then what kind of lingered or transpired um from that one dose or was it multiple no one one one, one pipe. Dose. yeah one pipe yes so it was it it, it it i just disappeared and it was it was just this feeling and and i just started to sob and i turned to the person who had given it to me and I just gave them the biggest hug and I was living in an eco village at the time and I remember that next morning I just I couldn't sleep I thought is is this what it feels like to be happy is this what life actually is supposed to be like and I remember driving out of the eco village and we used to have kangaroos and things and the grass and the trees and that one one dose lasted me completely um, for six weeks, it was I, honestly I was in, just in this incredible place of love and joy, and connection to God and Source for six weeks. The opportunity for the assistance of you know psychedelics to support people who uh, haven't been able to find a sense of. Um, fulfillment in day-to-day living, let alone the degree of pain and suffering that um, you've just described. And do you, uh, because you've just brought up about the system itself, what are your thoughts around the health system supporting with the legislation, of course, which has just shifted, so now there's legalized um, shifts in how people might get psychedelic assisted therapy, um, including the integration component. Uh, for you, after that six weeks, you just you talked about um, what has been the um, source of kind of continued wellness um, in your day to day. Uh, or from even that six-week mark when you said it lasted six weeks, we know that uh, this therapy is not a magic pill, as I you know, said before, even though it sounds like it was pretty magic for you. Um, but then the integration aspect of either how you integrated back in your life post that time, uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it was almost like I'd done the integration bit before, as in... Um, you know, I'd done three The Passionates and, you know, I'd started, um, you know, thinking that I should be, you know, doing yoga and I should stop eating shit. And, you know, 
it was it wasn't as if I just sat back and thought, oh yeah, this is my life. I'm a depressed, suicidal person. I my whole life was devoted to trying to find some peace, trying to find some peace. So I did all these courses, I read all these books. I it, it was like I had the reset, and then the integrate or the stuff that I'd done before then really kicked in. Clicked, right? Kicked in, yes. Yeah. Mm. So yeah. that just continued, um, you know, and then, of course, that just got better. The meditation, the yoga, the swims, the connection to source, to God. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, that's truly incredible. I think the uh, I'm reflecting on the fact of I, I myself um, included in time or periods of time whereby our entire day, every moment, um, breath, um, thought is related to either a feeling of utter pain and suffering, the addict experience, or for the entire day, doing things, actions that may support, we think, well, is good for us and to support well-being. And sometimes the whole day in the trying to, um, and that's including, you know, whether that be pharmaceutical medications, whether um, what we're eating, um, exercise, our own, um, whatever we might believe in, in terms of our beliefs and value systems toward a sense of wellness and still not feeling well and then each day that going um sometimes in a direction of getting and feeling worse which you've just described a good part of your life it seems um and yet there can be these therapies that can just shift the it's almost like you just said like the switch kind of turned and things were okay um day-to-day -day existence was okay um and the mindset the brain the chemistry in the brain uh in terms of literally shifting from from that experience is i mean it's it's miraculous really um but at the same time we know that with psychedelic assist therapy there um, the I don't know if you've seen those pictures of the fMRIs you know where the um the this the brain itself um that there's more connections um that weren't there before and then the plast neuroplasticity that can occur is there um some experiences post the um experience you had there that um has kind of continued that wellness um I know you're working you can might just um I know you work in a rehab um facility um and yeah just how day to day you have continued that kind of well-being or um you know that was um you said that was when you were 58 yeah, and you're 66 now. yeah so there have been a number of you know, a lot of people, um, I know myself included, I, I've mentioned before, but I don't think perhaps to you, my sister um, ended her life in November this last year. 
and she was, she was in a, um, America and, um, countless, you know, similar, uh, you know, countless medications, uh, facilities, et cetera. But the lack of connection she felt at the time, um, is what ultimately I think robs us of, um, robs us of life and having family and all those things, although so important and friends and all that stuff, she was, she didn't, um, feel that. And we were looking at psychedelic assisted therapy, um, at the time. And she felt, I know there was kind of from six to eight weeks that there were, um, some reprieve, but she didn't feel at that time she had, there was enough for her to, take that next step, um, which is really unfortunate and really the reason why, you know, I'm doing, you know, what I'm doing. But so I'm interested in your, those 12 years since. Um, oh, no, only, only six years. Um, oh, six years. years. Sorry, 50. Eight years. Eight years. Listen to us for our maths. <laughs> 58 and then 66, right? Nearly okay. 66. Yes. Okay. Do you want me to say what I think about the health system first? Well, I wondered because we kind of, oh, you're going to start talking about it. That would be great if you feel like, and then we'll kind of go back. Well, I've been a nurse since 17. It's not a health system. It's a sick system. It really is a sick system. And I don't like it at all. I gave chemo for quite a few years uh, before I got well. Um, I think it's quite toxic. I think it's all about money. I don't, I, honestly, I don't like the system at all, quite frankly. And um, I do have a concern about the clinical way that that maybe the legalised part's going to be done. So I'll talk to you about that later. But I, I don't, um, I think it's a sick system. And I worked and I've seen, I worked in the mental health in the public system as well as in the private system. No one seems to know where to go with it. Um, the private system is very, you can't have any medications for anything. But, you know, someone's deeply stressed and you can't even get a Valium. The private system's like, here, whatever you want, just go and get it. Because they, they get $5,000 a week for every person that's in a bed. So they've got this ongoing turnover on a six-weekly basis. Um, it's truly, I, you know, it, it really makes me sick. Um, I don't think the health system is a health system, quite frankly. Um, that's just the way I feel after my experience in it and the way the changes that I've seen over the years. Um, so, yes. And as far as what happened and my experiences after that, um, I then I went to the anthiogenesis seminar down in Melbourne a few years ago, about maybe five or six years ago or something. And that was when 5-MEO uh, was starting to get some traction. I, I believe it had had some traction overseas, um, but hadn't really had any exposure or traction. And basically the psychedelic world that I was involved with six years ago was all underground and all illegal. And there's still a big one out there because if if you're like me and you're like, okay, well, I can't get anything. It's either, okay, I kill myself or I go and do something illegal. I'm going to do something illegal. Doing something illegal saved my life. And I'm yeah. not... I, and. So I then got exposed to the um, the five meo, and the first time I actually did the five meo DMT, it's like an onion peeling. I've got a lot of trauma. I remember the first time I did the five meo because 
I remember pulling up my legs to give birth to my boy that was ripped out of me and away. So, you know, there's, it's like the body holds the score. The issues are in the tissues. Um, I, ne I needed some other onion pulling layering removed, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. Um, so I have continued to do the 5-MEO underground um, for a couple of years on and off, um, not just for myself um, because I get so much out of it, because of what I witness uh, when I do it. The last one I went to, there were three traumatised paramedics and just their releases, their trauma releases were just absolutely such an incredible privilege um, to watch and to be a part of. So I've just witnessed and seen so much over the years. Um, and I, but I also am concerned about it not being done properly. This has got to be, I'm so invested in people being able to get access to this. Yep. And I don't want, and the pharmaceutical companies would love to jump on board and have a terrible thing happen with psychedelics. And I don't, I'm just, it, to me, it's God. Whatever God means to you. And I mean, when I was brought up as a Catholic, and had a brother that was a priest, there was no God as far as I was concerned. If that's what God is and what you're doing, you're all fucking hypocrites. So I don't believe in God. Now, yeah. um, God is in me and God is everywhere. And I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for God and source. So, yeah, basically that's how I feel. Well, that uh, is, um, again, it, there's such uh, rawness in some respect as you speak, uh, and yet there's this the depth of what you are communicating, even in just the listening. Again, I keep doing this, but I get goosebumps. I think I said this the last interview, but I have this physiological, um, physical response. Um, my, I'm leaning in. If sometimes most people will hear this by um, just the voice and not. Um, but I'm leaning in, wanting to connect um, um, closer um, in terms of what you're saying. And it is un it is in some ways unbelievable to be able to articulate the breadth and depth of what you've just described. Um, I know we've jumped a little bit in talking about uh, the system and how um, it's uh, lack of resources in in many respects to truly uh, offer something that is healing. I heard you say like you uh, talking to a patient uh, and talking to them about you know a you know you said Eckhart Tolle but a, you know the power of now as a book um, as an example. Uh, you also talked about vessel vessel van der Kolk um, in terms of the body keeps the score. Um, and you were literally talking about that trauma in the body um, and the way in which the system um, is less and less individualized for people. Like you saw that person, that person was in need, that um, sharing something one-on-one -on -one with that patient um, is a connecting thread. And um, the last couple interviews, or we've been starting to just talk about um, the thread of connection, like literally connection as a thread. 
And when we, you you know, you describing how you did not feel connected to anything early on in life. um, And then finding connection, you just described with that, I'm just utilizing it from what you said in terms of there was a patient and you had a connection with that patient to offer something that you felt was a, a something that could spark something in that person um, and that the system doesn't care, so to speak, in that in those little connections and the thread of um, being able to offer something like that um, you know, there can be a tendency to, oh no, just give the med, give the medicines and it's more mechanical, um, and transactional, uh, which is what I think I hear you saying. So that individualized personal care, um, I don't know if you could comment on how you think the system, including you can utilize psychedelic assisted therapy if you want to speak about that now, but I'm saying it more broadly asking you, what do you think the system of care for those truly suffering? So in that pointy end of what you've, your story is a, is a pointy end story on many respects. And yet it crosses so many things from, you know, eating, you know, from eating disorder, food, um, related issues in terms of non-attachment from a family sense, um, uh, the religious aspects that early on were not necessarily conducive toward connecting um, your own family um, and connecting that thread with your, unbelie- I guess, the, um, somewhere that unbelievable uh, seed of the will to live um i wonder what you would if you could have a blank slate of what we could do in the system are we doing that with psychedelic assisted therapy how can we how can we be more and do more um in the system from your vantage point okay um as i said i worked in the private system and i worked in the public system and that incident in was in the private system and that person had been on as are so many, they didn't want to, they weren't in a position that they even wanted anything other than the medication. Yes. But when I worked in the public system, they were the opportunities. I could sit and talk to them. But in the public system, um, there's not a great deal set up as far as um, talk therapy and, you know, um, things for them. Basically, the public system is so tight. It's sort of get in, sort you out, give you a psychiatrist. There's a psychologist. Well, out you go. It's a bit of a revolving door quickly. Um, And so many people are just pushed back out there with no idea where to go. So as far as bringing the psychedelics and the psychedelic-assisted therapies um, into the clinical um, setting, that's where I'm curious as to how it's actually going to play out. I think if, for a start, you've got to want it. I mean, I was desperate and I wanted it. I had to get better. I, but there are an awful lot of people out there that, that aren't, they're, they're happy. And that's fine. That's their choice as well. But I, maybe they don't even know that there is another way. Um, so I, I just think, you know, I look, 
I look at the statistics pre-COVID and I, it's like, okay, well, you do the work and there are, they have great successes at this rehab. You know, some people don't need that reset that I had to have. But there are others that come back or that lapse. And I just think, oh, my goodness me, you know, maybe you're one of the ones like me. Um, and my heart goes out to them. Maybe they needed that reset, you know. Um, yeah, I don't know if that, I've answered the question at all there, but I haven't got a great deal of faith in the, in the I don't think it's a health industry. I really don't. Mm. I think it's run by Big Pharma and it's about profits and money. Yeah. I know that uh, just reflecting on, you know, whether it's the Australia system or, um, you know, I was thinking of also the US system um, where my sister was in, uh, the, um, you know, the number, the the reliance on so many um, pharmaceutical medications. Um, I think at the time when my sister passed, she was on 12 different medications um, and, you know, and still ended her life. Um, so whether or not if you had 12 medications and everything was working, um, then there would be a... Um, you know, I guess some of the evidence that, okay, well, that concoction of medications, you know, is necessary. Um, but, you know, after I think it was EMDR and TMS and ECT and um, my own experience um, myself with bilateral ECT, that was four years ago, um, myself um, and being in a clinic. So there's a historical um, um family, familial um, thing that going on there in my own family. But that notion of um, multiple medications and then with the system, med pharmaceutical medications are life-saving. So, I mean, I'm a pro-medication um, where that is suitable. But in the mental health space, it not being like we, we, we need something else. We need um, you know, psychedelic assisted therapy, where, as I said, I've come into it is not from my own experience with it. It's more so having, you know, two family members that have passed um, by ending their life. So I am very open to what are those mechanisms? What are the parts of the system and the treatments that could assist um, so the clinical evidence is um, much better now, which is fantastic. And obviously for Australia, um, changing the legislation in July. Um, and so it looks as though it's going to work whereby the um, the psychedelic assisted therapy really does mean that there's that integration um, sessions before and after um, the treatment with MDMA at the moment and psilocybin. So, <clears throat> um, I wonder from your vantage point, how you feel as well, um, the kind of carers, uh, family, friends, the people that love you, I can see a necklace around your neck that, um, looks as though maybe you'll have to tell us maybe a grandchild or something. So I wonder if you can um, talk about some of the connectivity you feel at the moment. Um, I mean, I feel it with you just speaking to you that um, can bring a sense of uh, this conversation so important. But I wonder if you could kind of talk about your connections at the moment and what really, um, you know, gets you in the heart space. Yeah, there's there's sadness as well because of 
you know, because of my mental health issue and, you know, so, you know, my financial, I'm, I'm basically broke and um, I'm, I've got a place to live. And, you know, I've, because when you're ill in the head and you've got low self-esteem, you can tend to try and find that connection that you were talking about in the wrong places. Um, so, and I, I had this thing inside me that if, if I had money and someone else didn't, then I had, had to give them some of mine. And then I, of course, I got involved with people who saw the, saw me like a sucker and, oh yes. And so basically wiped me completely, but the connectivity, like Jonathan Hari's book about connectivity is the key. Um, this necklace, right? I put my children through so much. I've got nine grandchildren and um, one of them who lives out at Uluru. Um, she made me this necklace. And as I'm getting older, I'm getting health issues and I fart a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so this, this necklace says, love one of them, my little boy, little five-year-old, he calls, this is, says, love you, nanny farty kez. <laughs> so yeah now i have apart from the two grandchildren that are in england my children look i deal with people at the rehab that have had issues with family and stuff and that the families have wiped them yeah um, my children are my i just they're my world my grandchildren i've hurt them so much and the connectivity now with family and friends is just incredible. And as I say, it's like God is like, it's, it's just sitting there. It's like that. And because of the psychedelic work that I've done, it's like I, I melt into, we're not, we're not you and me, we are one. And I now feel that, that connectivity. You know, I'm not saying I'm like this all the time. If I get on the internet and see something that really fucking pisses me off, then it's like I can feel my energy. I know I'm so, the psychedelics have helped me tune into my body, my gut. My I know now I get a, something in my gut or I'll get something here or something will catch my breath. And it's like, okay, sit, ground yourself, scan yourself. What is it? Um, so, yeah, no, um, the connectivity is the most important thing of all. Well, it's lovely to hear you say that. I think that um, the ability of that connection prior to the um, experience you had when you were 58 and that breath out, I think it's what a poignant poignant kind of just to return back to that for a moment in terms of it was literally you had the angst, pain inward of that in-breath and the out-breath um, being able to feel some of that weight, pain and suffering, as you just now said, melt away, um, in, so to speak. So then having that experience, um, the connectivity, um, did you immediately feel connectivity kind of in those six weeks when you said oh I was 
there, you know, I felt it for six weeks. Was it literally more that on and off switch and you just then felt connected to other things? Like you've talked about your family, but I'm wondering about, you know, nature, um, any other aspects that you, you know, you feel connected to, as you said, source being, there's no difference between individuals that we're all connected and we're all kind of seeing each other, seeing ourselves in each other. Um, did the connection just with everything come back then? Yes. Yes. yes wow. Everything. And I can't swim. And that was one, of, I had a traumatic experience. Someone was trying to teach me to swim. That's sort of how the whole belief thing started. It was an incident. And anyway, I was traumatized. And so now I just had the urge after that experience, um, six years, eight years ago, I then, I've been throwing myself in the ocean almost on a regular a daily basis. I can't swim. So I don't even go out where my feet can't touch. Mm -hmm. But I can feel, because sometimes when I do yoga, I can feel that it's stirred up the energy in me, you know. So it's like, okay, I've got to go to the ocean. And I throw myself in the ocean. I'm lucky I'm close to the beach. And I throw myself in the ocean. And I don't know what the lifesavers think because I'm not far out. And I thrash and I scream underwater and I flick my hands and feet and any anything that's inside me disappears into the ocean. It's a bit like the in-breath and the out-breath. I can be walking to the ocean thinking of something or I can feel that there's some tension or something in my body or something said, someone said something or something's got to me. And now I have the tools or I don't know whether the medicine did it with my cells. I'm not quite sure now. But I throw myself in the ocean, no matter what state I'm in. And when I walk out of the ocean, it's like whatever I was feeling before is just gone, you know. And if I'm feeling good when I'm walking to the ocean, well, then I just feel better when I'm walking out, you know. So the wow. connectivity is, is you know, I know when the connectivity is not there. It's like sometimes I'm so careful about what I eat now. I can eat something now. And it's like, oh, no, kids, don't touch that. You know, I I don't eat sugar's poison for me. Um, yeah, there's a, a psychiatrist that I found and, and she talks about sugar, wheat and dairy. You know, she was a normal psychiatrist and she never healed anyone until she actually stopped prescribing and then changed their diet. Um, and so it's there's so many factors about... Yeah this body, this human experience that we're having. I know. That, I'm just so grateful. Sorry, go on. No, no, you keep going. No, I'm just so grateful that I'm, I feel in tuned and intuitive now. Thank, grateful to the medicine and to universe and source that, you know, it's just like, it's just like. It's yeah. Good. That um, I was just going to mention the cold water. Um, I also have, um, do daily um, ocean water plunging, swimming. I'm usually in for about five minutes and do that kind of, um, you know, kicking a, you know, moving the moving the body, getting that, um, allowing that energy to kind of um, to release. Uh, and you know, cold water. I mean, also living near the beach. I'm in Elwood. Um, Bayside, Melbourne, and um, the 
power and the connection. I'm usually, you know, at the end being like, talk to me, Stephanie, which is my sister's name, um, um, kind of reminding us of the um, connectivity with so much. And, um, you know, I think also those who are not here with us um, and people who, you know, in particular, um, you know, people who have chosen to end their life um, because of that the degree of pain and suffering, which I think, uh, if I'm not wrong, um, and I'm included with this, um, and you might be as well, you can understand why people do that. Um, because the light is off. Um, the connectivity is not there. Um, and then these repeated daily habits, which is what you've just articulated, and you've just talked about food, you've talked in a, in a positive way, um, food you eat, so nutrition, um, going out in the cold um, sea, water, you know, yoga, meditation, um, you, know, you know, relationship with your family. Um, there is so many things that can keep us connected. The trick is trying to uh, and you said this about the health system, convey or get the people that really need it, get access to um, this, which is the, you know, one of the things Mind Medicine is doing is there's a, what's called a patient support fund, um, which the dollars to that will go directly to people having the actual treatment, none, none to Mind Medicine Australia. Um, and as a way, because of the financial uh, difficulty, perhaps um, that, the new legislation uh, in terms of we have approval now for it, but now the funding of um, the medicine, uh, we want to be able to uh, have it be accessible to those that don't, that can't afford it. Um, and, you know, you've just mentioned to yourself about how, you know, the means has, um, your means has left, um, you know, there's not a lot extra. Um, so, as someone who, um, you know, would pot potentially have difficulty um, having the psychedelic assisted therapy, do you have anything you want to maybe to convey around affordability? Oh well, yes, because I mean, I because of the way I was, you know, I I took all my super out. I've got, I haven't even got any super, you know, because I was going to die anyhow. Um, so, yeah, affordability, I think, is a big thing because it's often the people who are, like I was, who have got no money, they're the ones that need the access because, yeah. Yeah, rehab, is that um, generally nursing-wise what you've been doing oh, or no. as a person? No, no I'm, not, I'm not working as a nurse. I, did not, I decided not to get the vaccination. Okay. So for the, for the first time in nearly 50 years, I wasn't able to nurse. Um, so, and being broke, and I didn't want to, I haven't been on the dole. I don't, to me, that going down the Centrelink thing, that in itself, I think to myself, because I have tried that, I think that'll be enough to set me down in the depression wave then. Yeah. Um, so, no, no, I, not I, nursing. You're at, you work at a rehab. As a support person? As a support. And I've been running. Yes, I've been running the smart recovery meetings for the addicts. I do the sleepovers, so I'm there and do a sleepover for them. So the therapists stir them up and then I am there for the evening and okay. then I do the activities with them on a Saturday and Sunday and take them to either AA or NA. 
Okay. Oh, well, that's, um, you know, it's wonderful that you're still, well, everything you've said uh, makes sense in the, of why you would still be in the system, so to speak, but as a support person in a way where you can, um, things like providing, I imagine, uh, resources like different books or like you said, the power of now equitably, I imagine that you are able to share some of those things and connect with some people in this, in through this way of working. Is that correct? Connecting. absolutely, Absolutely. And it's, I think too, one of the biggest things is, and I think it's the same in any sort of, um, I did the lifeline telephone counseling course as well. I think it's, if you have experienced something and someone is in there for an addiction for which you have had, you know, and they can see, you know, Hey, I do understand, you know, I haven't had a drink now for eight years or I haven't done that. So it's like, cause I, you can imagine the amount of psychiatrists, psychologists and counselors I went through over the years. And some of them, they had no understanding of what it's like, you know? Um, so I think empath- empathy helps with that connection. Being Absolutely. able to understand, yes, walking those shoes, so to speak. When I think the support person, um, just that idea of a support person. I know that there was some discussions I had with people. Um, this was again before my sister passed, but of how you know someone who you know couldn't. She was working in aged care um, and still was giving back a few days before she took it ended her life. You know she was still you know working, um, but at the same time, there were you know, she wasn't able to get to different shifts and more and more is staying in bed and um, unable, unmotivated, unable to um, lift, you know, herself, so to speak. And I wonder whether that support person, I don't, um, you know, we've called it a long, long time ago when I had done um, academic research work um, in case management. So in the mental health sphere, you know, someone who uh, supports, um, someone helps them, um navigate the service system um and sometimes as a case manager uh being that gatekeeper so sometimes in a useful way sometimes for the patient sometimes the case manager wasn't always the um the person that helped them individually um they were more from a case managers worked for the system more versus the individual um and i know in australia the mechanism to support someone like an individualized um, support person, a little bit like in the uh, disability uh, support scheme that I know um, people use. But I wonder whether the system, you know, for people that can't, aren't getting out of bed, aren't doing those daily habits um, and starting with those small steps to get them tiny bit connected so that then that feeds on itself um, but it seems like such a long way between unable to function and feeling connected to everything, source, et cetera, what you are, what you have very eloquently um, articulated. And so I guess this in the system, what do we need to do so that those individuals have um, our basically marketed, so to speak, that the psychedelic assisted therapy is 
a useful tool, obviously coming from the psychiatrist. Um, but I think that is just one step. Then they need that. What is it going to, to what's going to continually connect people um, and keep them connected? And it sounds like, Carrie, you have been able to facilitate post that experience of having in a way that aha moment um exhalation and then feeling literally connected for up to that six weeks and then from that point having some mechanisms because you had that experience of feeling connected that then you've been able to build upon over the years is that mm-hmm. is that a good yeah. description of yes what, yeah. Yeah. yeah and I guess that person I guess I I wonder if you want to just comment as we kind of last couple questions the comment is about I'd like you to comment around what is it for the person who feels nothing feels that they want to take their life end their life what do we give them right now what how do we how do we reach that those people yeah, well, I don't know. I've had guests and clients and friends that have told me they've rung Lifeline and got put on hold. So I honestly, Deb, there's a big hole there. I don't know. Yeah. You know, I've actually thought about actually starting to even a little business as an experiential consultant. I, I'm not a counsellor and I don't want to go through the whole counselling degree. Yeah. You know, I did the Lifeline yeah. telephone counselling course. Yeah. And the Gabor Mate one, but sometimes I think all when I think when I say I'm working as a support worker, basically all I do is listen to their what they're saying, their pain, and and just listening. And they know a bit about my story, and they might ask a few questions. And it's like, wow, okay, Keza can do it. And look at her; she didn't till she was fifty-eight. So, oh, I can't. Um, so that's how I am a support worker. I'm not involved in any, but that's up. That's what upsets me too. These people, you know, I know that they can do video calls and aftercare after rehab, but after they go out of those sheltered gates, it's like, and they, when they, if they do come back and some of them do, it's like, they felt like lost. What's going to happen now? What do I do now? You know, yeah. um, Many times over the last six years, I've, I've even thought I want a 1-800 number where someone could ring me at any yeah. time and and say, you know, because what's the point of ringing a lifeline and getting put on the hold, you know? And there are a lot of lifeline telephone counsellors that didn't have any life experiences either. And you had to go by a script. The only time I was helpful to people in my lifeline doing it at night was when the other person went and had a little nap because you had to follow a script. The only time I felt like I did any good with Lifeline with these people that would bring me up at 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning was when I could actually be honest and tell them my journey, my experiences. But I wasn't allowed to do that, but I did it. Um, I think their power, I think this goes full circle back to, you know, kind of why, um, why, we are doing perhaps the the work um, in this space, and I mean the work in kind of inverted commas because it's uh, it's kind of a a um, uh, 
it it's from an experience. So I feel that the lived experience that you've described um, it, and we've communicated about today um, is the very um, kind of the the gems are the real stories that can be conveyed that um, even though there has been so much suffering and pain and trauma on different levels, that there has been something, thank goodness, that um, allowed the light to come on for then that experiential um, ability to now convey to others and listen to others and have real, you know, true deep um, empathy. Um, and one of the reasons I, you know, I said this the last, I've only done two of the other interviews, um, you're my, the third one. And it's from a space of, uh, in wanting to do this work in terms of communicating with um, people with lived experience, I feel like there is this sense of the deep listening that we don't do in everyday um, kind of living. I, I feel that though you do. My sense is, Kerry, is that you at this stage in your existence and evolution and well-being that you you don't you you say it like it is you convey um deep trauma that has been experienced over many years and still then though at 50, you know at 58 a a light bulb moment an aha experience that has given you meaning and purpose and the will to continue living and i i can't um relay enough i think that potentially you know this has been if not the most authentic description of what i have heard in this space um not just in terms of for this podcast but in terms of the pain and suffering um the re being able to relay and then also have that sense of hope and promise um, of that there is a way through. Um, and I wonder if with, um, anyone listening to this, my sense is, is that you have given them um, just a sense of complete and utter honesty and um, conviction and authenticity um, that will make a big difference. And I think that we need to continue conversation and hopefully with you as well around how, and maybe it's one individual at a time. I mean, obviously we want to scale this um, in terms of the opportunity for psychedelic assisted therapy um, and ways in which we can um, integrate those maybe aha moments, maybe for those that also don't have the aha moments, because working with trauma, as you know, isn't an easy, it's not an easy experience. Um, so I wonder if just in closing, um, you know, taking a moment and, you know, is there um, anything else that you feel you would like to relay or something that's kind of 
niggling of, you know, I think that this is also my story. This is also something else I'd like to um, communicate about. Um, I know that's a little bit of an open field, but I feel like, um, yeah, there might just be a couple other things that you might like to relay or you might be finished. No, I just want to, and you know, I've been given such positive feedback from the beautiful people that come to the rehab. You know, um, I just think, you know, I give them hope. You know, I think stories from the lived experience panel, it gives people hope. And if you're like, I'm sorry, I'm gonna cry, but if like your sister and, you know, um, all anyone wants is some hope there's a chance there's a possibility with different therapies with maybe the psychedelics with the psychedelic assisted therapy or some people come to the rehab and they don't need the psychedelics there's there is hope but like the the guests and the patients i saw when i was in the public uh, the private system i don't know what what it is but some people are quite happy to stay with where they are and that's that's fine too but no wonder the suicide rate's going up and up and up, you know. Um, so I just, I just think that I just want to give people hope that, you know, I didn't for 58 years. I thought there was no fucking hope for me. That was it. I skydived and hoped twice. I skydived and hoped that the chute wouldn't open, you oh, know. Um, <laughs> no, but I couldn't. I couldn't do anything anymore because of my children I'd heard them enough but it was you know how in the world can I get out of this world without it being appearing as a suicide so I just you know people like myself and the other lived experience people and like what you've gone through and with your sister it can give people hope yes well you certainly have um transmitted a um, lived experience that uh, I certainly hope um, continues to thrive, that you continue to feel connected um, and utilizing resources uh, that, that just truly make you feel um, alive, including the cold weather. I have to come over to um, Bayside Elwood and we'll 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 do some thrashing about um together. And then also I was just going to say that thrashing about and I do it too a bit in the water um and it's quite useful. And then I don't know about you, but um I that whole just then lying and that floating, I kind of look up to the sun and say, talk to me, Steph, as I said before. But I there is this sense of stillness sometimes after of just being and not having to have not having to um emit so much um effort we do so much effort in yoga we call it um stiri sukha which is effort and ease how can we be kind of allowing us to have a sense of focus and clarity but also stop having to work so hard you know and striving and um you know, sometimes we do need that thrashing about. And sometimes I guess my hope as well for you is there can be that sense of stillness and peace and deep love for all the work you have, um, you've 
done and continue to do. And um, I know that if I was in rehab, I would want you to be that uh, support person. And yet you've been, you know, on the flip side and the ones suffering um, themselves. And I think that um, just that given that giving of yourself, um, I just hope that your cup continues to be full and create those spaces and opportunities, work or family or in any way, shape or form, including mind medicine, um, whereby you can um, feel full at heart because um, you certainly have, um, yeah, you've relayed something that I think will uh, last a long, long time. So thank you, Carrie. Um, thank you, to continue. I'm and I know, I know what to do to fill me up. You know, it's, yeah. yeah. Thank you, Deb. Thank you very much. It's been a privilege. And as I said, my, my life purpose now for as long as I live now is to um, to spread the word of mental health. It's not, you, you know, if other things don't work and don't give up, just don't give up hope. There's something there. Well, I could talk to you forever, Carrie. Thank you so much. Um, we really appreciate the time and effort. And um, I don't think this is our last conversation. No, I hope not. <laughs> I Carrie, I, we've been talking offline at uh, when we finished, and I wasn't uh, sure about the continued uh, perhaps quest and connection with the adopt your adopted son. Um, so I wondered if you could just share uh, that um, you just connected with him uh, not that long ago. Um, no, just no, it was a long time ago when he was eighteen. Oh, he was, was eighteen. Like yeah, I was just like, and they just sort of changed the law only just as he turned 18 and I was able to track him down through the electoral roll. And oh, I, found okay. out, I found out that he lived in Sydney and I got a, another party to contact his mum who just happened to be a nurse as well. <laughs> and um, so, yes, and I hadn't said anything to the three other children, which were full brothers and sisters. Um, so when I did find him at 18, I sat the three kids down with my husband, sat him on the couch and said, look, you know, we've just hired a Tarago van. We're going to cry. It's so emotional, you know, even. It's just, it's a, as Gabor Mate talks about it, there's this cellular thing, you know, to have your child ripped away from you. Um, so I sat the kids down and we went on. I said, you've got a brother, a big brother. And it was like, what? And I didn't know what reaction, and they were just so excited, you know. Wow. And we got in the van, Tarago van, and headed to Sydney. And we're parked outside their house at Concord. And the, all the kids and my husband were asleep in the car. And I got out of the car and just, just yeah, just looking at that house where my son had been and brought up and lived and, yeah. So, yeah, no, we reconnected, but it was very tentative to start with because, you know, um, I love him and he's my baby, but I don't know him. Yes. Yeah. You know, so. Oh, that's. Yeah. So I, that sort of, I was still fucked up then. That was, you know, when, when I, as I say, I found him when I was 18. So, and even that didn't fix me or really help me. Yes. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, well, that is um, beautiful that you're now connected. You said one of the your other sons um, always wanted an older brother. And that is um, beautiful. What well, sounds like um, there is no perfect um, life experience. We know that, um, but reconnecting, um, I'm sure, has been uh, very uh, heartening for you. And that, um, as you said, though, even that didn't uh, heal um, us. As an example, that doesn't heal. You know, one thing you think, oh, if I only had this then I'd be okay. Um, and I think we all know that there's different variables, including the treatment um, that we have for, you know, have on offer. So hopefully the continued uh, use of psychedelic assisted therapy is one avenue um, that is a resource to people um, ongoing. And also uh, I don't, I might just ask this um, since we were back online, um, in terms of the adverse um, reactions or adverse effects of the of any psychedelic um, medicine, uh, I know also at Mind Medicine Australia we are trying to convey what the real picture is, not just all um, you know it's all roses and um, everything's easy. Um, I just was wondering with your experience um, from adverse reactions, uh, is there anything that you want to speak of in terms of um, on that side, the challenges? Um, well, I, I think as you know, the psychedelics are not the, the magic bullet and one and all, you know, you've got to, you know, I, I sort of, as I said, I sort of did the integration before. Yes, but um, the adverse side effects, I myself personally, um, I haven't seen any. Okay. Um, and I'm so grateful I haven't. Yes. But I'm very, yes. the people I am involved with go to great lengths to um, uh, make sure that the people that are going to do it are in the right space and not on medications that might have an interaction etc that don't yes. have like you know they're very cautious so i'm very very lucky um that i haven't witnessed any um negative side effects but i also have seen people come back and do another journey and they're basically almost in the same spot that they were um because they didn't do the integration. Okay. Yes. Well, and I think that that is one of the um, added benefits, that there is such a key component. It is, there isn't one, it's not the only variable of having the medicine itself, but the integration uh, yes. into the life uh, is a really important part. And, uh, you know, the talk about um, being able to experience or re live trauma from a vantage point where you, you can um, be with the experience and not, um, you know, completely um, get unhinged. Or if you get unhinged, there's the support for you and the integration. Um, and that, yeah. really, that there isn't, um, it, it isn't necessarily the easiest, easy path though. And I think we also want to relay that it's not the you know, it's it's hard work. 
as well. It's, it is. Yeah, it is. It is. And it's a, you know, it's, it's a 24-7 work. It's every thought, deed and word. You know, what am I putting into my mind? What am I putting into my mouth? Um, you know, you can be Mother Teresa, but if your motive in your head is ego and look at me or it doesn't matter, it's it's like now, it's like it's like source or God. It's like, oh, yeah, Kerry, was that a good thought? No, yeah. sorry about that one. You yeah. know, so it's like and the self-reflection, the that integrative part of um, compassionate inquiry and going into yourself that Gabor and all the others talk about. The psychedelics are definitely not the just a be-all and end-all, I can tell you that. Yeah. Well, and I think that that is a nice um, place to um, to pause the conversation. We'll continue um, and, you know, your wealth of um, experience and, um, yeah, just a real genuine heartfelt thanks for no, thank you. For coming on. No, I, and it, look, as I say, I mean, I, I wear the Mind Medicine shirt. I, I have to say they're very, I had to order two. The first one I had to give away to my niece because <laughs> they're really tiny. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, I, I wear the Mind Medicine shirt very much so. I want people to talk. I want people to ask the question because I think apart from anything else, psychedelics aren't for everyone. But yes. I don't think there's anyone out there that doesn't know someone who isn't traumatised or has some sort of issues, especially post-COVID even. So it, yes. it may not even be for them. Yes. But it could be, wow, you know, maybe so-and-so. I know so-and-so, yeah. you know. So, And the more people that know about it, then, of course, the more pressure builds up with the, the government and more change is possible then. And so, you know, so that's why I talk well, about I, it to everyone. You've got some more work to do in this space. Thank I have, you. I have. And it's funny, my kids say to me, I keep saying, oh, you know, I'm old and I'm getting decrepit. And they say, Mom, you're going to outlive us all. You might. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thank you, Carrie. Thank you, Deb. <laughs>